Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Welcome to AUKUS Amplified, the podcast series brought to you by the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. Today, we're highlighting a few of the many outstanding papers presented at the 31st annual meeting of the association, including the award papers. My name is Dr. Stefano Bini, and I am the chair of the Digital Health and Social Media Committee at AUKUS, and a professor at the University of California, San Francisco. Today, I'll be joined as a co-host on this podcast by none other than Dr. Dax Steele, who's my co-chair of the Digital Health and Social Media Committee. Dr. Steele, thank you for coming, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Stefano. As he said, my name is Dax Steele, and I work at the Andrews Institute in Gulf Breeze, Florida. Really excited to participate in this podcast today. The title of the paper we're highlighting today is Questioning the Nickel-Free Total Knee Arthroplasty, which won the James A. Rand Young Investigators Award. We're joined today with Dr. Charles Lowry from the Miami Orthopedics and Sports Medicine Institute, who was formerly at Washington University where this research was performed. Thanks for taking your time out of your busy practice to join us, and thanks for being here. Thank you, Dr. Beanie and Dr. Steele. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be here and uh, discuss my research. Awesome. Thank you for being with us today again. So let's get to it. So you're the lead author of the paper. So tell our audience why you're interested in this topic in the first place. What inspired you to look into it? Sure. So nickel allergy and total knee arthroplasty uh, remains a controversial topic. You know, despite extensive research, I think there's still kind of muddy waters on how to accurately test people for nickel allergy before surgery. Do skin allergies correlate with intraarticular allergies? And there's some questioning of whether or not nickel allergy is even actually a real mode of failure of total knee arthroplasty. So there's a lot of nickel-free total knee arthroplasties um, out on the market. Most of the big orthopedic companies manufacture nickel-free varieties or special coatings on their implants to avoid nickel in the implants for those patients. And those implants are wonderful, but they fail to take into account the fact that a lot of the instruments we use in the operating room are made of metal. They may have nickel in them, and just performing the total knee arthroplasty alone may actually contribute quite a bit of metal debris inside the joint. So really, we were kind of curious, even if you're using one of those nickel-free implants in a patient with a nickel allergy, are you still going to end up with nickel, cobalt, and chromium in the joint just simply from performing the procedure? Yeah, in particular, I noticed young muscular males. I had one patient in particular who was a a laborer, um, had occupational exposure and claimed that, you know, he was allergic to metals. He wasn't actually sure which one. And, you know, doing his total knee arthroplasty, I used a nickel-free implant. And I noticed as I was doing the procedure that in his hard bone, there was actually some metal debris deposited on the ends of the bone. But even at the end of the case, you can't really debride or get that off with standard irrigation and such. So I started thinking, we're using these special implants in these patients where we're worried about nickel allergies should we be worried about the actual instruments we're using to perform the procedure? That's great. Let's get into the key aspects of the paper. First, let's talk about the study design. We see you use two groups of 24 consecutive cases with the cemented cobalt chromium components and then 17 cases of the nickel-free. So tell us why you designed it that way and whether that was enough power to answer the question we're talking about here. Sure. So unfortunately, not really much data to guide us on sample size here. So this was really designed more as a prospective observational kind of pilot type study. And, you know, like you said, we had two groups. One group received uh, cobalt chromium femurs and cobalt chromium tibias, uh, cemented implants. And the other group received nickel-free implants. In this case, it was uh, oxinium femur and a titanium tibia. 
And how did you collect the data on these patients? Sure, so in the operating room, prior to the performance of the arthrotomy during the total knee arthroplasty procedure, we aspirated synovial fluid from the knee joint to get baseline levels of metal in the joint. And then after the procedure, we placed a drain interarticularly just prior to closure. And we collected all of the fluid from the drain up to the post-operative day one morning when the drain was removed. And we measured the metal ions, including cobalt, chromium, and nickel in the fluid both obtained from that preoperative aspiration and from that drain fluid we collected postoperatively. Okay, why don't you summarize the, the results of the, the values that you got from these samples? Sure. So, you know, looking first at the results of the cobalt chromium total knee arthroplasty cases, we actually found a significant increase in all of the metal ions we measured. So chromium, cobalt, and nickel all were elevated at the end of the procedure compared to the beginning of the procedure. What we saw with the oxinium total knee arthroplasty was that there was no increase in cobalt levels, but there was still a market increase in chromium and nickel levels, despite the fact that the implants themselves don't have any uh, chromium or nickel. So that led us to go and look and see what the the actual metal composition of our instruments and implants were. And cobalt chromium, so the uh, tibial and femoral components of the cobalt chromium implant we used, is 58% cobalt and 30% chromium and less than 1% nickel. So that accounted most likely for the elevated cobalt levels we saw in the cobalt chromium cohort, as well as some of the chromium levels that we saw elevated in that cohort as well. In terms of the oxinium implant with uh, titanium tibia, there's really no detectable levels of cobalt chromium or nickel in those implants. So we wouldn't expect those to contribute at all to the, the metal we found in the joint um, on post-op day one. The cutting guides, the captured cutting guides we used from both systems are made of 17-4 stainless steel, which the 17 and the 4 actually stand for the percentage of chromium and nickel respectively that's in those implants. So certainly the cutting guide and jigs were most likely responsible for elevations in chromium as well as nickel in both cohorts. And then finally, the saw blade actually is made out of a material called strip steel. It's 13.5% chromium and less than 1% nickel. So looking at our results all together, Essentially, what we concluded is that when you're performing a nickel-free total knee arthroplasty, interference between a captured cut block and the saw blade actually liberates metal from both sources, but in particular, in this case, most concerning that you're liberating uh, quite a bit of nickel from the actual cutting blocks themselves. So just to be clear, you weren't suggesting at the beginning that the components themselves in that first 24-hour cycle were contributing to the metal. It's just the cutting blocks and the saws, correct? So... For the cobalt chromium cohort, it's unclear if the elevated cobalt was from the surgical procedure, uh, you know, from actual impaction of the implants into bone, or if it was from like a run-in period of there being some wear on the outside of the implants in the joint. But in, certainly in the oxinium cohort, there was no other source of implant material that could have contributed to those elevated metal ions that we found. So what were the concentrations of the respective metals that you found in these, these blood samples on post-op day one? Sure. So uh, post-operative day one in the cobalt chromium total knee arthroplasty group, the chromium levels we found were a mean of 0.278 parts per billion. Cobalt levels were 1.38 parts per billion, and the nickel levels were uh, 0.41 parts per billion. In the oxinium cohort, the chromium levels we measured on post-operative day one were a mean of 0.5 for chromium, 0.124 for cobalt, and 1.37 for nickel. Interestingly, we actually found that 69% of the oxinium total knees that we did actually had greater than one parts per billion nickel in the joint fluid that we took on post-operative day one. So 
in conclusion with your recommendations, if you were concerned about somebody with a true nickel allergy, what would your recommendations be based on the findings of this paper? Sure. So it seems like the levels of nickel and chromium that we found on post-operative day one in the oxinium cohort are certainly due to interference between the saw blade and the cutting blocks. As I mentioned previously, the saw blades don't have much nickel in them at all. Um, so that really leaves the cutting blocks as the main source. So in someone who you're very concerned about a nickel allergy in particular, the message from this study would be potentially using something like custom cutting blocks or maybe uncaptured cutting guides. It would reduce the amount of chatter between the saw blade and the cutting blocks. Maybe a robotic system without any type of cutting guy whatsoever? Sure. The only caveat there is I'm not sure offhand what the material composition of the saw blades are for the robotic systems. We used a specific saw blade that we went to the company and asked them for the actual material information sheet so we knew exactly what it was. You got to be a little worried that potentially some of those saw blades could have some nickel in them. Another question I so just put things in context for us. We're more accustomed to testing serum metal ion levels. Uh, synovial metal ion levels have different threshold numbers. Can you summarize for our audience how to think about that number? Sure, so the numbers that we found are actually quite low, even for serum levels. And in the literature that's looked at serum levels versus intraarticular levels and things like metal-on-metal total hip arthroplasty, the serum levels are usually significantly lower than the intraarticular levels by several orders of magnitude. The concern for us here is that if someone truly does have an allergy, a type 4 delayed type hypersensitivity reaction, even a small amount of that offensive agent could potentially trigger their allergic reaction. And you also made a point earlier which I thought was interesting is that we tend to think of metal ion issues as being surface related, but you talked about deposition of metal within the bone substrate by the saw as it goes through the cutting block. And I think we've all seen that. You pull the blade out and it's kind of dark or even black, and you really can't wash it off. It's hard. You almost have to scrape it off. Yeah, something absolutely. Yeah, something we definitely pay more attention to in, in patients that we're concerned about. During your presentation, you showed on the slides the scanning electron microscopy and the profilometry of the saw blades that were used during the case. Can you go into detail about what those findings were for our audience? And just to, just to just highlight, uh, these are pretty impressive images. The, obviously, the scanning electron microscopy shows the surface of the metal, and we see pitting and some etching. Whereas in a profilometry, uh, it's a color-coded scan and uh, shows where there's wear of this off the surface of the metal. And you can see quite a lot of, it's actually quite a beautiful photograph, uh, but there's a lot of variance. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the scanning electron microscopy was great because it really gave us a good idea of how the surface of the blade is actually beat up. You know, there's a lot of fatigue wear, abrasive wear, adhesive wear. There's some plastic deformation of the blade that we could see as well. The profilimetry was nice because we could actually get a view of the entire blade and really identify where most of the damage to the blade occurred. And interestingly, kind of correlating with our hypothesis of where those metal ions are coming from, is we see most of the wear on the blades actually around the edge of the blade, which would mean that's where it's hitting the edges of the captured cut blocks. So one last question. During the uh, presentation, the levels in the joint were captured on post-operative day one, and there were some questions over where do you think these levels go on post-operative day seven, post-operative day three month, where the levels might wash out, so to speak, and cause less of a reaction. What would you say to people that are wondering about that level? I think absolutely. The body's pretty good at 
clearing out toxins, whether it's from the knee or from the blood. So certainly if you continue to follow these levels over time, I would expect them in the joint to decrease. Obviously the study I would have loved to have done is followed these patients out to a year and aspirated them at a year and measured the metal ions again. Unfortunately, I think that would have been just logistically a little challenging to convince the patients to allow us to do that. But certainly I would have expected them to go down. But the question becomes, again, if someone has a hypersensitivity reaction to a metal, and you're trying to avoid that, maybe you should be doing something different, like we said, using uncaptured cutting blocks or potentially custom cutting guides to avoid that chatter with the saw blade that can generate these metal ions in the joint. And as far as you know, and this was not the scope of your paper, but did you have any follow-up to see if it, these, these ion levels correlated with a increased stiffness or inflammation post-op? You know, just anecdotally, we didn't really notice anything. That wasn't the focus of the study. But certainly within this cohort, I'm unaware of any of these patients being revised or having any major issues with stiffness. Right. So in summary, you brought up a great question. Is there ion release perioperatively that has nothing to do with the surface of the device? Or perhaps, let me rephrase that. So in summary, you asked the question if the surgery itself can create a presence of ions that could create a hypersensitivity reaction, and the answer was yes. The, the levels are low, and we're not sure what the impact is, but we definitely can't say that it's a nickel-free experience if somebody has to undergo a total knee replacement with some of these devices that are otherwise expected to be nickel-free. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So what an outstanding paper. Congratulations. Just give us a a take-home summary for this particular paper. What should we be thinking about? So my take-home from this, from the results when we got them, was that if we're truly worried about a patient having a hypersensitivity to a metal reaction, which I think is very rare at baseline, but if we're actually worried about it, and just using a nickel-free construct alone isn't going to solve the problem completely. If I'm really trying to be extra careful about exposing them to potential allergens, uh, I would use some sort of custom cutting block or non-stainless steel cutting blocks to prevent introducing any of the nickel into the joint. Right. And, and as, as that brought up earlier by Dax, it's plausible that robotic, just a non-captured guide may also help with that because we saw that the, the saw hitting the edge of the cutting block may actually be a significant contributor. But we don't know if you can study it, if there's other sources of metal ion release in those uh, cases. With that, I'd like to close the, this podcast and invite our audience to listen to the rest of our podcast and hope you'll subscribe to Akas Amplified on your favorite channel. Till then, from all of us at Akas Amplified, have a fantastic day. Thank you, Stefano. Really enjoyed this podcast. Thanks for letting me share our findings. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.